like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk welcome to the latest edition of the just not sports podcast this is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like just not sports on today's show we will talk to og bachelorette winner ryan sutter about his short-lived NFL career, and how he redefined himself as an athlete uh, after that traumatic experience through endurance sports. I will also apologize to Ryan Sutter for trying to kill him during a branded (laughs) content experience a few (laughs) years ago. All will be forgiven. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I am a sports marketer in Chicago, and joining me on the line this week, also in Chicago, he is respected, beloved, feared, nationally admired PR guru, Adam Millard, and because we have Ryan Sutter on and because he played on the fabled 1994-95 Colorado Buffaloes team, I will say, who has logged time with the Colorado Buffaloes, it's Adam mm-hmm. Willard. Adam, what do you remember about the 90s CU teams, buddy? Uh, well, of course, the thing I remember most about the 90s, your favorite player, Eric Bieniemy, and then later Rashawn Salam, Cordell Stewart, Michael Westbrook, but I do remember Ryan being on those teams and being a really hardworking, scrappy player, Brad. (laughs) Well, you remember, I have have an autograph connection to both Eric Benemy and Rashawn Salam, and I'm not sure if I've told this on the podcast in a few years, but uh, Adam got me an Eric Benemy signed jersey. Uh, It says Bengals for Life, which I find hilarious. It's framed in my office. Uh, because of that, since Wait, he got say for or the number four, number four for sure, number four. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is awesome. Mm-hmm. It's the collect. Is awesome. This is like the the white cement versus the black <laughs> cement Jordan threes of Eric Bieniemy Bengals jersey autographs. <laughs> uh, but I also my dad. I, so I started collecting ridiculous. Uh, sports memorabilia when I was in college, which is why at one point I had the world's greatest worst. NFL jersey collection ever. And uh, my dad tried to pick up on this. So he bought me a Rashan Salam mini Colorado helmet, like a mini helmet that was autographed. Because he went to some sports store mm-hmm. and he was like, what's the cheapest thing you've got? And they gave him that. So I had it up in our in our off campus house in college. I was like, yeah, I had the, the Rashan Salam mini helmet was there. It was kind of a joke. And our house got burglarized one night we all went to the bar we came home our tv was gone stereo gone everything in the downstairs front room was gone they clearly this like walked in grabbed a few things ran out and someone's like you know they left the rashan salam mini helmet (laughs) we had a good laugh man like that was a heisman winner that was only like five years previously he won the heisman come on you gotta take that with you man (laughs) 
Oof. Yes. Rest in peace, Rashawn. R.I.P. indeed. All right. Also with us in our Brooklyn Bureau, it is seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer Gareth Hughes. Gareth, uh, Gareth, what's the most value? What's the most valuable autographed thing that you have? First, Brad, I want to say that like your story of your dad walking in and saying, "Like, what's the cheapest thing you got?" reminds me of twenty-two short films about Springfield where Milhouse goes into the comic book store because he has to pee, and then the guy, comic book guy is like, you have to buy something. Uh, uh, what can I get for 75 cents? Uh, you may purchase this charming hamburger adventure. <laughs> A child has already solved the jumble using crayons. The answer is fries. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, we probably watched that together um, in your basement. My... Uh, my... This has a tangential sports relation. It's honestly one of my favorite objects I own. Uh, it would be probably stolen just because it looks cool, though it would be weird to see them try to sell it. I have a baseball that I got at a charity auction. Um, my boss at an old job was running it, and he bought. He was like, I can either pay you money uh, that I owe you. He's like, he owed me like 400 bucks. I was like an intern that they had started paying. He's like, or I can buy you something from the auction and I pointed they had a baseball autographed by the Pixies, Frank Black, Kim Deal, the the nineties band. And I was like, I want that baseball. I want the baseball, dude. And I, he bought it for me and I'm so glad I took that over four hundred dollars. Like it's one of my favorite objects. It was bought at a charity auction in Boston the year after the Red Sox won their first World Series. The Pixies had just reunited. That is my best autograph. I mean, man, you showed me a Joe Namath autograph football that you have too. Like that, <laughs> that's, like, that's sitting up in my closet. Like I haven't looked at it in years. The Pixies baseball is out. <laughs> so we are we are the weirdest show in sports. Like I'm just gonna say that is for damn sure. All right, right now. Uh, maybe next week I can go deep on my piece of William Faulkner ephemera. I've been writing an essay about it. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, please. Let's get into that right now. No, no, yeah. no. Hold on. Let me pour uh, myself no a drink. More, no more Gareth distractions. <laughs> like, please don't. Yeah, no more Gareth distractions essays for like two more weeks after last week. All right? All right. So right now we're going to take the open of the show and make it wide open. Anything in the world of sports that is not sports is fair game. Guys, I'm going to start. I'm going to start with what I consider to be the two diametrically opposed ways that athletes are trying to control their own narratives with. And that means hashtag content. In one corner, you've got what I call filtered content. And that is like this whole range of go behind the scenes with this athlete as he tackles the biggest challenge of his career. And do that through a highly produced and glossy documentary series that we've clearly cut up into seven episodes that we are selling to the nearest content provider uh, to make a big splash. And that's, you know, uh, KD uh, <laughs> through the noise or or whatever that was. Uh, Adam, your favorite documentary. Tom Brady. Book. Yeah, Tom, you know, TB12, yep. uh, Tom vs. Time, whatever. And that stuff's fine, and there are moments that clearly drove buzz. I mean, if you ask me what's the most what's the most effective content around Super Bowl uh, in the week before, I would say Tom vs. Time when he's like, 
you know, people are debating whether he's kissing his kid too long. I mean, it was a, it was a, definitely a think piece. But there's a whole subclass of content I find much more interesting. And that is what I would call unfiltered athlete content. And this is stuff like athletes going on Twitch. And, you know, Ben Simmons is on Twitch making news because he's challenging. I think it was Carl Anthony Towns to like games and like calling him out. Uh, it's uh, Kyle Long from the Bears having his own Twitch channel playing video games or Hunter Pence. Like there's a lot of athletes just putting out unfiltered versions of them away from sports for public consumption. And then there's even dudes going way beyond that, like Olympic swimmer Cody Miller. And I can't I can't remember, Adam, if I, I mentioned this in a few podcasts ago, but he started a new daily vlog and it's very much in the in the yes. the, the spirit of uh, you know, Casey Neistat and other uh, daily vloggers in terms of style. But as I've followed it, it's it's really cool. Like he's he's not only showing you the life of an Olympic swimmer day to day, but he's giving like young swimmers instruction and not just like, here's how I train, but like, here's how to get uh, noticed by a college coach. Like what a smart content series because like how many young swimmers are like trying to get a college scholarship like and this guy's just using his daily life to like show you that. So I guess I'm just wondering and Adam I'll start with you as a um as a branded hashtag content maker. Like mm-hmm. what do you think about this dichotomy between hyper polished content that lets you into the world of athletes versus more like raw and real and where do you think the spectrum's going to swing moving forward? I think it'll swing to the latter, but I think there'll always be room for both. I think, first and foremost, athletes like to be celebrated with um, slick pieces. I just watched the Conor McGregor documentary, and I thought it was an honest but edited look at his life. I do think, in this show, we talk about it all the time, I do think the way of the future will be athletes producing uh and I use that in air quotes, producing their own content. I think as a, as a guy who spent his career as a PR guy in sports, I was so nervous uh, working for a team when Twitter came out because guys didn't know how to use it. They didn't really know who they were talking to. Um, and part of my job became printing out Twitter feeds and sitting by a guy in his locker and highlighting and saying, don't say this. You can't say this publicly. (laughs) Don't say this. Don't say this. And so I come from the framework of uh, wanting to protect athletes. And in fairness, Twitter was so new to everybody uh, that nobody really knew what they were doing. But reporters picked up on it quickly, and that became another source of news stories for them. So they'd have their time with the guy in the locker room, and that is our my that was my version of edited content where we had control over that environment. If an interview was really going south, um, we figured out how to interrupt that, and to some degree, we controlled the message. On the other hand, guys would go home and at ten o'clock at night would have a thought, or they would react to a reporter as still often happens and the unfiltered content came out um and mistakes were made 
then and mistakes are made now, I do think it's really interesting to see this this next generation of athletes coming up. Um, Zion Williamson, the high school basketball player, uh, hasn't even graduated yet and has 1.1 million followers on Twitter. Uh, and I think he's going to figure out what his voice is. And I think he's probably already most of, he, I know he's more sophisticated than I am on social media. Uh, so I think it's going to be really interesting to see the next generation of athletes who have grown up with YouTube and Twitter, Snapchat and Instagram. Uh, they all have a good understanding of those platforms. They've seen good content. They've seen athletes get in trouble for bad content. It'll be I'm really intrigued to see what this upcoming generation of athletes is able to produce, having trained their entire lives in these mediums. I agree 100%, especially on the last part. Adam, that's a crazy anecdote about printing out Twitter. That sounds like like, like the Dead Sea Scrolls or something. It's so old <laughs> at this point. <laughs> you know? Like, you're like... Like, hold on, let me get out this tablet and slate, and like, it's crazy. But um, I talked to somebody about that recently in production, just the idea that uh, these kids are going to grow up with this technology so natively that it's going to make all of us... I mean, we're all, we were all born, spoiler alert, guys, at a really terrible time, <laughs> like, in history, be tw being between, like, the last of... Whew. Well, that digital revolution was close. We're going to survive going analog the whole time. And the next generation, which is going to be like native digital everything. And we're like fumbling with cords and like, yeah, guys, I'm just working out this router back here. Um, Brad, you brought, I meant to bring this up last week when you talked about the kind of magic you like. You've talked about David Blaine in the past being something you loved like when he was backstage with Dave Chappelle I guess it was The Roots I think it was the the band he was with and we talked about that once and like that was so that was minor magic as you put it but it was so compelling to you because it was it was shot on an iPhone it was so believable you felt like you were there it was not it did not have the gloss and polish of like a two-hour david copperfield special where he gets sawn in half or makes the statue of liberty disappear i think that people are figuring out ways to capture i think in some ways this is um this isn't always good for sports but i think right now people want to feel something rather than it like feel an emotion or feel like they're a part of something. And that is more important than the production value. And I think that that will mean a reckoning for sports. Cause like coming off the NCA a couple of weeks ago, it was interesting. Like this production company, we were working out of these edit houses. And one of them said to me, they were like, the level of production of the stuff you guys do is insane and in how quickly you do it. And I don't say that to pat ourselves on the back, but I think that sports and the gloss and the polish and all that other stuff is one of the areas of production left where executives and leagues want to see a lot of money spent on it. They want to see a lot of lights poured on the runway. And so I think that in sports, you're going to see a greater dichotomy between the high-end polish of a network documentary and some of the more, I don't want to say low-end, but just like ragged, intimate, 
um, seat of your pants content that'll be coming from players who don't need the polish. They can just, by putting their face on a camera, on a phone, they can achieve what it takes hundreds of thousands of dollars in fancy lighting and equipment to do. Yeah. And I say more power to them. Okay, wide open, Adam. What's on your mind this week? Well, uh, it was a glorious weekend, guys. Uh, I won't, I won't rehash the highlights because we're not a sports show. But I watched the Masters, UFC, two twenty three. And thanks to a guest we had on a few weeks ago, Adam Rank, WrestleMania on Sunday night. Um, I ate a lot of meat. Uh, I lifted <laughs> some weights. Uh, I almost killed a man in the park. So it was truly a <laughs> testosterone-filled weekend. I give you credit for jumping into the sporting life for both feet this past weekend. And really getting after it. Like, that is that is a lot more than I could do. And frankly, if you could pull that off with children, then you're really, like, then you should write a self-help book because you're going to, like, make a lot of money. Well, that's the other factor is I, I have a girlfriend who lives in L.A., but hopefully um, we will live together sooner than later. Uh, just, she was not around to supervise me. And, uh, I figure it's only a matter of time before my girlfriend becomes my fiance and these days are over. So part of me was just soaking in as much as I possibly could. For Easter, we gave our daughter Hotel Transylvania 2 on DVD in her Easter basket. Adam, I Uh I know most of the movie now. Like, I just know it. No, no. Uh, It's funny. Brad, I agree with your point that kids have more to do with what you watch or don't watch. Uh, It was funny. Like We put Wiley to bed the other night, and Amy and I were watching The Florida Project. And he came out a couple times because he's three and annoying about, like, I want to snuggle. I want a water bottle. Like, he's milking it, and it is whatever. But he came out, and because The Florida Project, usually he comes out and we're watching something, it's got adults in it, or it's something that he is clearly not interested in. But he came out, and we paused it, and he looks up and sees these like little kids running around in this movie because it's like it follows the lives of children, and he just looks at us like, "What are what are you doing? Like we're in bed, and you're now like watching our shows." He just saw the kids on there. He's like, "Can I watch with you?" And we were like, "No, dude, it's time to go to bed." But he was confused. Like kids w- are the ones who will dictate media going forward once they enter the picture. And Brad, I can do most of Transyl- the first Hotel Transylvania. But can't you, like, if they need if they need food or water, can't you just put that in their room and lock them in? Uh, booty rapper, stay booty. <laughs> what no they're not dogs huh okay yeah they're not yeah no it's a drag it took it took me a while to realize that too i remember when amy was pregnant she worked from home uh for antiques roadshow 
And she was like, we're going to need a nanny. I was like, can't you just take care of the kid and work at the same time? She's like, what do you think caring for a child is like? And I was like, <laughs> well, it's not that tough. <laughs> I, I was all wrong. Yeah, listen, I'm terrified. So I, I get it. Uh, uh, I don't know if I want that day to come, although I will be an amazing father. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Right now, we're going to move to our interview with Ryan Sutter. This one takes on a special resonance for me. Uh, back in 2011, I was uh, I was a young, ambitious... I mean, I was youngish, uh, ambitious uh, content <laughs> creator. And we had sold in a project to take an endurance athlete and run them through several huge races. You know, triathlons... Uh, marathons, uh, half Ironmans, all within the same season. And we, 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 we go and grab Ryan Sutter. Ryan Sutter, who had been on The Bachelorette. Uh, Ryan Sutter, who most people knew as more of a media personality than an athlete. But, you know, he, he was in the NFL. He played D1 football at Colorado back when they were a top five program. He went to the NFL. His career ended in one play essentially. And after that, he had to decide what his future was going to be like and, and whether he could become an athlete in a different way. And we, we took him on this journey and I openly talk about maybe trying to kill him. <laughs> I mean, we put him through <laughs> race after race after race and, and, and training after training. And Ryan was like the zombies <laughs> in, uh, in uh, walking dead, man. Like, it could be a hundred degrees outside. You could tell him you're, go you're going on twenty miles today, and he would just he would just grind through it and do it. And it was so impressive to watch. And so, with all the talk about mental health for athletes and how do athletes redefine themselves after their initial sport ends, I just thought it'd be great to reconnect with Ryan and, and hear his story, give him the podium, and let him talk about you know what do you do when you make the NFL and then your career ends in one play, like. How do you find yourself? How do you find your purpose? It was great to reconnect with Ryan. Ryan, I'm sorry in hindsight for all we put you through, but you were a great sport. And uh, enjoy this interview. And afterwards, we will be back to distract you. Stick around. I should I should ask you off the top are you have you forgiven me and the rest of our inside endurance crew for for literally trying to murder you by putting you through like seven races in in four months <laughs> I miss like I was thinking back to those days and you know obviously time erases the sort of bad bad components and not but I honestly I probably put you guys through more of a, a, cha a more challenging experiences that you did me because um, because I get kind of competitive and anal about certain things when it comes to racing and then you know it was a tough adjustment for me to try to get prepared for a race but also for um this production that was going on alongside of it and i think i was just sort of starting to figure it out when it ended well we'll get more into the endurance uh endurance stuff in, in a little bit i want to go back though to ryan the ryan the football player um right. 
when did you start playing and when did you first think it was something you were good enough to do professionally? Um, well, I started playing really young. Like, you know, it had to have been two or three. Uh, my dad was always super into sports and we would watch on television. They, they went to University of Nebraska. They're big Nebraska fans and we would watch all those games and, you know, the Orange Bowl, you know, Nebraska at that point was perennial, perennially in that game. And so, I, you know, I always asked for those, uh, those like kind of little kids, um, football uniforms for Christmas and yeah. was always taking the football around and stuff. Um, I wanted to play football super, super early, but you had to be, I think you had to be in fourth grade to play. So my parents made me play soccer. Uh, you know, I would always break down and be like, I don't want to play soccer. I want to play football. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and at that age, you know, it's, it's like, I was like, I wanted to be, you know, a cowboy and a fireman and a football player. I didn't see any reason why you couldn't just go be a football player. You know, I was whatever, five or six years old. So I, from that point on, from that age is when I really developed the, um, you know, the, the pursuit, or I guess suppose, of playing professionally. And obviously as you grow older, you realize how much how much work that takes. And, you know, there's a lot of luck involved and that not very many people get the opportunity. But um, I just kept playing and playing. And, you know, I didn't get a – I wasn't heavily recruited if – you would count what I, what happened with me recruited at all to play out of high school. Uh, and I went um, went to see you and kind of worked my way up. I didn't have a scholarship. I walked on and I worked my way up through the ranks and then got a uh, scholarship after a couple years, but still wasn't like a standout player. Um, didn't start at safety until my final season. And that's when, that's when I started to realize that I had a chance because so this is part of where the luck comes into it. Is we we had, um, you know, I mean, I, I love the guys, but we had a little bit of a, of a challenge in our defensive line and linebacking core. So I got a chance to make a lot of tackles at safety. So <laughs> so recruits would come in and you know they'd be going to watch these sort of bigger name players, and then they would see me make you know 15 tackles or whatever in the game. So then then I started getting a little more attention. Uh, from NFL scouts, and and that's when I thought maybe um, I had a chance. And it probably all worked out in my favor because I didn't go into that senior season, you know, with any expectation of that or, you know, I didn't have any kind of outside pressure on me to, to perform in front of um, potential NFL scouts. So it all just kind of happened organically. Uh, you know, obviously when the season ended, um, I started getting invites like the Combine and that kind of stuff and that, you know, obviously, you know that sort of um, state that you've got a you've got a chance. And you were at Colorado during the golden era of CU football. You, I, I have to ask you because you were on the field during, I would say, arguably the most memorable moment in program history, even more than the national title they won during the the Cordell uh, Cordell Stewart catch in the Big House. What was yeah. that? What was that like? It just being being on the field, like how would you describe it to people who've only seen that moment on television? Um, well, it's, it's one of those things that I vividly remember. So like people have life experiences where for whatever reason, it's just um, branded into their memory forever. And that was it. Like I remember all I, I was a redshirt freshman. So all, the only thing I did was cover kickoff and so, you know, which was fine, but right. that's the only reason I was at that game. And, you know, I remember, I remember 
the sort of, uh, you know, the the rejection or the dejection or the, the sadness of thinking uh, we're going to, we came so close, you know, it looks like we're probably going to lose this one. We've got a great team. Um, I was on a knee next to this guy, Vili Mau Mau. I don't remember it. He's a defensive lineman. We were sitting there on a knee, like, kind of just waiting for the game to get over, watching this play unfold. And then um, you just hear the, the big house just go, just go silent, like completely <laughs> silent. And and we're just and the and the opposite effect on the CU sideline. Obviously, we just euphoric. You just oh my god! And we're running down, and the only real like huge dog pile situation I was ever involved in in college, and you know just like un- unbridled enthusiastic um, joy was it was what it was because you go from this oh, this this extreme low because you know in college football if you lose a game you're kind of it's tough to get back up to where where you want to finish yeah so that and that was early on early on in the season and then that that happened and you just all the way from rock bottom to like the moon in just you know a matter of a second it was crazy and then and then of course it's on the cover of sports illustrated and they make posters about it and so there's, it was just awesome, like just super, super memorable um, experience in college. One of the few things I actually do remember from my college years. <laughs> and so what was the uh, – well, first of all, you start playing a lot for Colorado. What's that like with your parents who are diehard Nebraska fans? And, and you know, Nebraska was the only team that kept you guys from winning the national title and. 95 yeah. I think. So I mean what what was what was the dynamic in the house or were they pretty like pretty much like look we're we're going to root for whoever our kids suiting up for. Yeah, they they were 100% behind CU when when I was going there. Um yeah, at least to my face. I guess they could have been <laughs> uh, actually kind of happy but but my grandparents on the other hand were not. They they lived in Nebraska and they um they hoped that I would personally have a decent game, but we're always still, um, we're we're always still rooting for the for the Cornhuskers over the Buffaloes. <laughs> so when, so the you went to Carolina, and I for I, I forgive me, I forget off the top of my head whether you were drafted or whether you were a, a post draft free agent. I I was drafted to uh, Baltimore, and then I was released at the end of training camp. From there to uh, and picked up by Carolina. Okay, and what what was it like to be? I guess we we don't really talk a lot to athletes about that sort of um, tenuous time between getting picked up by a team and really just hoping to make the roster. Like, what was camp like and the early stages? Uh, I guess uh, both in Baltimore and then when you went to Carolina. Like, what was the anxiety like of just trying to make this team so bad? It was tough, man. I mean, it was the first time where you, you know, you've got a bunch of guys that have been doing it for a really long time, and they. It, it's the first time where where everybody's really talented physically, and it's the good players were separated by their ability to understand the game and the concepts and and the defensive strategies, and so there was a lot more of a mental component to it. And and I was. I was um, always talking to Marvin Lewis, who was our defensive coordinator at the time, and I'm like, man, I just can't seem to figure it out. So I always felt like I was one step behind um, in everything that I was trying to to do at, at that level. It, you know, first of all, the 
game speed is is way faster than college. And then there's all this thinking that you're trying to do on the field. So it's like it's like I tell I tell kids now when they're trying to like get better at sports. I'm like, worry about the physical part about it, but also get your understanding of the game down because it's like it's like if you go to run a 40 yard dash and you can just run the 40 yard dash and concentrate on running as fast as you can, you're going to get a pretty good time. But if you go to line up for the 40 yard dash and they hit the gun and I throw a math problem out at you and you have to solve it before you finish, <laughs> you're going to be slower. And it, that, that's how it that's how it felt when I was playing. And and I just couldn't. I, I honestly really struggled trying to keep up with with the whole mental side of it. The physical part of it was one thing, but the mental part of it really was tough. So you make the roster, and I, it, it's the opening kickoff of your first game is the play, right? Yep, yeah. So walk us through exactly what happened and um, just how cognizant how cognizant you were in the moment of the extent of, of the injury and what it might mean for your future. So, yeah, when I got, I got picked up by Caroline and I was put on the um, – the practice squad. So, and I was there for nine weeks and in the 10th week is when I was activated. So I put a lot of time in on, you know, a lot of time and working on the practice squad. And finally I was going to get my chance to play in the jets. And it was Vinny Vinny Testaverde was the quarterback and they passed a lot. So I was going to be the nickel safety was going to probably play 80% of the game and play special teams. So, um, I was, like, this was my chance. You know, like, everybody gets their opportunity, and it's sort of kind of what you make of it that determines how far you go in, well, in a lot of aspects of life, particularly in sports. So that was that. That's what, That was my mindset going in. I had, um, I was well prepared. By that time, I I was thoroughly, I thoroughly understood the game plan and the way things worked in my role. And on the simplest play, ironically, kickoff, which, which like I said, that I, that was the first thing I did in college and the only thing I did my first year that I played in college. And there's no more straightforward play than kicking, you know, running down the field and trying to tackle somebody. So <laughs> that's what I was lined up to do. That was always my, you know, my favorite thing because it got you your, your first little, your first hit. And after that point, you kind of settled into the game and you, you know, the nerves went away and the anxiety went away and you played. And I, so I ran down the ball carrier. I don't remember exactly who it was. Started coming towards me. Um, they always had this. What they use this wedge kind of concept that's I think illegal now. But they they came at me. I sort of split the wedge and dove out to try to trip up the running back, and um, I think did, but I can't remember. It landed on my shoulder weird, and then just remember remember not being able to lift my arm. Got up on one knee and was like, I don't know if I can like. It was really confusing. I didn't really understand what had happened, and then I remember Sean Gilbert. He's a big defensive lineman that was on our team running back out and, like, kind of just sort of running past me and saying, like, welcome to the NFL, rookie, and, like, <laughs> um, not realizing that I had just blown my shoulder to smithereens, but um, thinking that maybe I'd gotten dazed or something. And then, you know, getting off to the sideline, the um, trainers came over, and, and they're like, oh, your shoulder's dislocated, but let's but put it back in, and then if you can raise your arm, you can continue to play. So they 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 relocated it, and then um, I tried to raise my arm, and it and my shoulder fell back out of the socket into like my chest. And they're like, 
all right, you can't play. So then <laughs> they took an x-ray and um, an MRI and, and the extent of my injury was going to um, be the end of that season. Um, I still hadn't quite given up, but we had, a ter- we had a terrible year that year, and so they fired our whole coaching staff. I came back into a brand-new coaching staff. I think George Stiefert was the coach from was Dom Capers, and then George Stiefert came in with his guys. And um, never, you know, never really got any traction back on the team and was released in, in training camp, and, and that was kind of the end of it. I went, went and played over in Europe for a season, which was fun. But um, the, the NFL sort of came and went just like that. And, you know, I called my girlfriend at the time from the – the locker room after I'd gotten hurt, and I was just like beside myself. Like you know, I couldn't believe it, and you know, it was that was I, I had so much um, hope. You know, there was like that was it. You know, like I said, from two or three or four years old, whenever you can really comprehend what you want to do in life, that was it. And that's what I wanted to do, and and I had gotten there. Like literally gone through all the major obstacles and gotten there, and then then it was over, just like that. You know, we we had um, Jay Williams, the former Duke player, on the show, and 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 you know he lost his career after a motorcycle accident. And he he talked a lot about the mental toll it took to come to the realization that this thing you've worked so hard for, this thing that has been the center of your life, is gone, and you're a young man. And what now? So, from your perspective, um, what was that like? Uh, I guess how would you? How would you weigh the emotional toll, and how long did it really last? Uh, did you have an extended sort of funk or a period of doubt, or did you move pretty quickly onto something where you said, "I got to, I got to reset and, and just go"? Um, you know, in retrospect, it seems like it went pretty quick, but you, you, there's so many components that you're dealing with that are suddenly gone, and one is that you know the dream of of playing football and that sort of lifelong ambition, um, and then the 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 thing that sort of accompanies that is that, like, I didn't even want to watch football. You know, like, I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. It was. It's hard to go from being a player to a fan. It's still hard, even if I go back to like a CU game. I'm always like, I feel like I should be in the locker room, or like, it feels weird to be sitting in the stands, you know, watching the game from that perspective because you just have this player mindset that I, I think you just always have, and that it's tough to overcome those components of it. So. It was hard even just to be a fan of the sport. Um, you know, I, I, I love watching football now, and it's, that stuff is, has definitely subsided. But, but initially that was difficult. And then, and then there's so much, is, um, so much is determined for you when you're doing that kind of stuff. You know, you have schedules given to you and you know, weight programs and nutrition programs. And, um, you know, if you get hurt, you go to the trainer. And, like, there's all these things that are just in place you know, that are, are built into the process and that's all gone too. So if you go for a jog or a mountain bike ride and you crash and you sprain your ankle, you gotta, you gotta figure out what to do. There's no, you're not going to the trainer and there's like those little components of it were almost, almost as hard as trying to figure out what's next in life. And then, um, you know, so I, I took a, I took, I took a trip to Costa Rica with some friends and just sort of, um, you know, all through sports, I led led a really disciplined life because I, you know, I was I was hell bent on getting to where I wanted to go, and then that was gone, and I kind of just let loose. I sort of, I guess, uh, sowed my wild oats for lack of a better term, and just went and <laughs> hung out in hung out in Costa Rica and um, 
relax and learn to surf and all that sort of stuff for a month or so. And then, and then came back and, uh, tried to figure out what to do. And, and ironically, um, referred back to the same period of life where I decided I wanted to be a football player and, and found what ended up being my next career in firefighting and started to explore that, found a lot of the same, um, qualities in that profession that exist in, in athletics, in sports, um, team, teamwork especially. Mm-hmm. And that, so that started to really uh, show itself as, a, as an option for where I might go next, and, and that's the path that I followed. <clears throat> when, did you, when did you start to dabble in endurance sports? Um, I, you know, by, by the time I met you, you had done 20-plus, almost probably 30 races, so how long after your NFL career did it take for you to, to rediscover a new way to continue uh, athletics? Um, that was relatively quickly. I, you know, once I kind of had determined professionally what I wanted to do, I, I found myself in Vail, which, you know, where I still am, in Vail, Colorado, and in a, a whole new culture, a whole new life. I've you know, always loved the mountains, you know, so I... I moved here, I figured that's where I wanted to be. And then this community is just is just full of endurance athletes. And I had one particular <laughs> yeah. John Hansen who was like, Hey, you should do an Ironman or something and, and I was like, Oh, that sounds like a challenge because that you know, that's the other component. You you sort of figure out your profession and then you're like, Well, what do I do to 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 satisfy this um competitive need and this like you know, you need a purpose to your workouts and your your routine, and 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 that that became endurance sports for me. Is that it was like, okay, this is going to take the place of all those power cleans and weightlifting and stuff. It's going to be, I'm going to lose some weight. It's going to be healthier. Um, there's, you know, it's a whole new challenge. There's tons of people involved with it up here, and I can get, you know, that it's a source of social kind of. There's a social social component to it, so that that started to really appeal to me. I was horrible at it. I'm still not really great at it. I, I can, I can get through, I figured out I can get through almost anything. It's just, sometimes it's going to take me a little longer than, than most. And so I was never at an elite level of endurance sports, but it definitely, it definitely came through as, um, as an option, as something that was really satisfying for the, for the need to be competitive. You're uh, you're you're being modest when you say you can get through anything. We we used to joke that you were kind of like, uh, you know, like a like a like a zombie. Like you you it, it could be any condition, and you could just figure out how to muscle through. I remember when you did Chicago Triathlon, the water was so choppy when the race started that people were quitting in the first, you know, in the first three to five minutes because they couldn't get through it. And you were just like, yeah. well, what are you gonna do? You know, or or you'd have cramp. You'd be like, well, I started cramping on the first mile, and then I just kept doing the next thirteen and just figured it out. I don't know what it is. Uh, honestly, last weekend, so one of the fire guys had signed up for this forty-mile race from Crested Butte, Colorado, to Aspen, and his partner tore his ACL one, one week before the race, and so he's like, hey, is there any way you could do it? It's a skinny. It was <laughs> one week notice for a forty-mile race. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And so we went down there and. <laughs> And we ended up doing it. It took ten and a half hours, and we're on our skis. And we haven't had a great snow year, so there was probably six or seven miles of like hiking and ski boots on dirt trails. And it was it was not it was less than ideal. But <laughs> yeah, you know, part of me was like, all right, we're like this is we're we're doing it now. You know, like 
how many people can do it? And so we, we just kind of put our heads down and yeah, that, you know, I did this, this race two years ago, the Leadville, this whole Leadman series, and there was a hundred mile running race and I didn't, I didn't run hardly at all before it because my philosophy was I, I'm just going to get in decent enough cardiovascular shape. I know it's going to hurt, but um, I don't know what components of life made me this way, but I, I know that I am so stubborn that there's no way I won't finish it. And so that's what happened is I just like, it was the most painful, agonizingly like terrible experience in my life. But I was like, I'm just, I'm going to get through it. We're going to do it. And then I'm never going to do it again. <laughs> and so that's, <laughs> so that's, that's what happened. And, and that's kind of you know, like endurance sports gave me that kind of perseverance. And it's kind of, you know, that's a valuable tool. I mean, being able to push through the muck of life is um, something I think it's been really, it's been really valuable to me to have that, that characteristic. What, uh, I guess how many races have you done now? Oh, I don't even know. It's, um, a lot, like dozens and dozens. I mean, you mentioned a few of them, but what were the other that were you would call the most challenging physically and mentally, and why? Uh, the, well, the Leadville races are all hard. I've done the Led, the Leadville 100 bike race eight times, and that that was my first really long, like you know, that's eight plus hours of riding on your bike, and that was probably my first really long race that wasn't um, an Ironman. I've done a couple of Ironmans. Um, the, you know, the New York Marathon and Boston Marathon, um, both of those, I think, with you guys, or with Gatorade way back. And then, um, you know, I just did this uh, this Grand Traverse race, this Crested Butte Aspen thing, and those are the, those are the long ones, but, some, you know, sometimes it's actually the shorter ones that get you the most. Like, a, a part of this Leadman series I did was you had to do the 100-mile bike race, and then the next day you had to get up and run a 10K, and then a week later, you had to do that 100-mile running race. And that 10K, the shortest of all of them, was probably the most agonizing because it was just like this. It was like when you have a rock in your shoe and you just like want to take it out. <laughs> God, and, yeah, like it, it was one of those races where, God, oh my God, I just want to be over. Because it was in between these two giant races that I knew were going to be tough. And you just had to do this annoying little 10K as part of, as part of this series of races, if you wanted to complete the series, so that just stuff like that is has been challenging. When you get those little things that you just don't want to do, but you have to do them anyway. You know, you've done Ironman Kona. What what would you say? I mean, everyone knows. Everyone who follows endurance sports knows about you know. Oh, you hear the stories about the wind on the bike. Uh, and how it'll blow you over, and it's hot coming off the the lava. You hear the stories about the swim, and I'm just from your perspective, what what's like a sneaky hard aspect of that course that people don't think about until you're in it and you can't escape it? Um, well, that was my first really long triathlon, and what I remember was, um, you know, your the wind is demoralizing. Like wind and everything is demoralizing. Ironically, it's worse at swimming than any of the other three or other two components of triathlon, but I enjoyed that the most because it was, it was almost like snorkeling in Hawaii. It was beautiful. <laughs> so that part, that part was cool. I just remember being on the bike. It took longer than I thought because the wind, that wind was legit. And then I remember getting off the bike, putting on my shoes, and just trying to run, like not even like trying to run fast, but just trying to switch from biking to running. And I was, I was like, I can't, I'm not going to, 
there's no way I can run 26 miles. Like this, <laughs> I, it, it's so weird because your muscles like are so used to spinning. Um, you Cause, know, spinning. Because how many miles is the bike? The bike's 112 miles. Oh. So it was like just short of six hours or something on the bike, and then you know you just have this, tw- you know, 26 miles to go, and you're thinking, all right, I made it. I've made it, you know, 10 miles. And like, oh my God, 10 miles is good. Crap, I saw 16 more miles. <laughs> Go, you know. And so the mental side of endurance sports is um, is something I never really anticipated when I got into it. Is You always just think it's a purely physical challenge, but there's a whole lot of convincing yourself to keep going that I didn't really anticipate at first. But you, you, you push through a lot of discomfort. Yeah, I mean, how now I've seen you've done things like American Ninja Warrior. How was that experience, and what was what did you do to train for it? <laughs> well, that came up sort of last minute, and that was awesome. Like that was nothing like endurance sports. And the only, the frustrating thing about that is you only get one chance, right? And then, and I didn't get that far. I got like halfway through the course, and and so <laughs> what I did to train for it was I did a ton of grip strength and pull ups and all this sort of upper body stuff and gave myself elbow tendonitis and then Max and I would drive down to um, this nin- this ninja gym, ninja intensity in Castle Rock and we would practice on the warped wall and like they had obstacles and stuff. And and Brad, we, we have a trampoline in our backyard. I didn't jump on it once. And a trampoline is what threw me out of that race or that competition. <laughs> I had to like jump out of this spider wall onto a trampoline and then just off to the next thing and I jumped out of the spider wall, landed on the trampoline wrong. And, and mind you, these trampolines are like somehow turbo, turbocharged trampolines, like right. break knee trampolines. But that thing just crumbled me and I collapsed into this freezing cold water and it was all over. And I'm like, are you kidding, are you kidding me? I did. I, I built a grip gym in my garage, like, <laughs> like, like all these climbing holds and, uh, um, pegboards and stuff, and a trampoline in that we've had in our backyard that my <laughs> eight million backflips on is what got me out of that competition. I'm like, you guys are joking me. Like I just, like <laughs> I've got all these calluses on my hands and all this sort of stuff, and the trampoline is what bounced me out of that. No pun intended, but yeah, but that was super fun. But really I can fun. I can only picture how frustrated you would have been to to go, and, and I know you you have to stay poised too because you know I'm sure they're. Um, you know, they're, they're probably, you know, going through the backstory on the show and, and talking about you and Trista and how you met and, and then here, yeah. you, here you, you wipe out and, and they're probably expecting you to just be like, Hey, I had fun. But secretly you're like, damn it. I'm building a new, <laughs> a new course. Like I'll see you next year. Oh, yeah, totally. Exactly. Yeah. You want to just, like, can I just, can I stay here until everybody's done and like try again? <laughs> right. Because it's just so frustrating. You want to try it. You want to try it again. And, and and so I, I fall into this pool, and instead of, like, getting out calmly, I try to somersault out <laughs> and and crush my head on the scaffolding, which no one noticed, but it felt like my, you know, like when you bump your head on stuff, yeah. it feels like gushing blood. And I'm like, oh, God, what did I just do? And, and uh, yeah, yeah, I was like, oh, God, my, I just crushed my head. This water's freezing. I'm shivering. And I just failed miserably in front of my friends and family that drove down from Vail to watch me do this course that I totally thought I could do. And, oh, it was, yeah, exactly. Like, if you're a competitive person, you want to do it again. But but like I said, that it, 
it's it's a really well run experience. Um, and the the other competitors and everybody in there, even the really really good guys are are just super generous with their time and advice. And I, I had a really positive experience. And I actually applied again to see if I could do it this year. I have, haven't heard back, but I'm hoping that I'll get another chance. Do you still feel like an athlete? Um, and, and, and if so, when did that finally sort of click in in your head? Definitely I do. I, so um, it, it's interesting you say that because I'm, I'm currently exploring some other opportunities for um, uh, like my next career as the fire service sort of the fire service is a lot like athletics. Like there's a there's a d- defined kind of into it based on physical capability, and I think that's probably starting to happen for me. And so you you adjust what being an athlete means. You know, it goes from being professional, you're paid for it, to recreational, but still pretty competitive. To almost just like oh, uh, it becomes part of your lifestyle, and I, that's kind of where I am. Is it? Uh, you know, I, I was talking to somebody else in, in Trista, and I was like, you know, I feel like my need to be athletic in some regard is almost like my need to eat food and drink water. Like, it's just yeah. part of what makes me who I am. So, you know, um, my son, Max, started playing hockey this year, and we started going to stick and pucks and practicing around, and so I joined a men's league team. I play on Fridays with a bunch of guys. So I started playing hockey, which is which is awesome. It's like the best sport. It feels like the best. Maybe it's just because it's new and stuff, but I love playing it. So I found that um, there's the team, the teamwork side of that back there. But it, to me, what I've kind of figured out is it doesn't really matter um, as much what I'm doing, as long as I'm doing something with my physical self. And if I can do that with other people, um, you know, oftentimes that's great, but sometimes I like to just go up you know, I'll um, get up the mountain in the mornings and ski back down just by myself, and it's a great, almost you know, quasi meditative experience. And it can really get, you know, it just puts the day on the right course. And so it's, you know, I guess to answer your question is, I I think I'll always consider myself an athlete in the sense that I'll always consider myself a firefighter, even when I leave the fire service. Is I think they're just reflections of who, you know, they're reflections of your character, and so that that. They always, they'll always be there. You know, you'll always, you know, be willing to help people out of um, situations. Or you're always going to be looking for something hard physically to overcome and challenge yourself on. And that's just who I've become. I think it's who I've always been. It's just you, you mature through life in different ways, and it and it takes on different meanings. But but that's where it, that's where it is for me now. And and it's a great, it's a really great place. And finally, like. You know, there's so much talk about mental health in sports. What what advice would you give for the high level elite athlete who, you know, is grappling with their career ending or 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 has lost out on opportunities because of injury or other circumstances? Like, what would you pass on to them to to help them sort of push through and 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 find hope in another aspect of of existence? Really. Um. You know. I mean. Hopefully, just just some of my. Um some of what I what I've been able to do would be just would be an example to them. I have a great friend, John Michael Lyles, who played in the NHL for fifteen or sixteen years, just retired, moved up here to Vail, and I think he's doing it right. He he's actually still playing hockey. He's on the men's league team that I'm playing on. He's found uh, other avenues of expression for his athletic 
desires and needs. And and that's, I think, the, the thing is that you can't get so focused on the fact that one door has closed because there's a lot, there are a lot of opportunities out there to, to express yourself athletically. And the experience that you, you get through sports um, can only help you in, in the rest of your life, whether it's, whether it's in further athletics, you know, whether you want to go into coaching, for example, you've got that kind of experience there. If you want to find something else, like for me, it was firefighting, but sports was a huge component in helping me become successful in that regard. So you, it's not like you're just, it's not like you're just leaving something and it does, hasn't left a huge impact on you. It, it, it sports gives you a tremendous skill set that people that it, it's really it, it's really valuable and desired in in professional life. So you just have to be patient with it and and find you know your find your next way of expression. And and that I guess the best advice I could give is is approach it with some patience and experimentation until you find kind of what works for you, and then just keep just keep going with it. I mean. I, I'm I'm super happy. I don't think I've I honestly look back and find and and feel like I was um, lucky to have left sports when I did. You know, I mean, who knows what could have happened if I would have played another five or ten years, or you know, it just it, it, you know things happen and you just you just deal with them and move on and 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 like I said, it, it gets better. It's it's not like the end of your sports career is the pinnacle of your life. My, my life has gotten um, infinitely better since then. I mean, I wouldn't even be talking to you, Brad, if, <laughs> if I hadn't gone to You've really made the it. other things. And like, that, that's, I mean, this is probably the pinnacle <laughs> moment. I, everything is unfortunately downhill from here, but until this, it was great. Just again, just seeing the joy that you got out of a different kind of sports. Uh, I remember talking to other athletes who, uh, we run into on the endurance circuit and and to see them and the joy that they had finding new challenges is 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 really I think interesting so I think it's fascinating man and I wish you nothing but the best and I promise I will never uh, put you through all those races and then and then force you to smile on camera and answer questions about your nutrition habits <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah that's that's awesome although I do I, I honestly do miss that it was that's not like a experience I look back on with regret I love it was a good summer. It was a hard summer, challenging, I think, probably for everyone. But I, in the end, it's nothing but positive memories for me. So, so. Well, you know, I, I left that job like a, like two months later, and on my last day, my appendix burst in the office. And I always I always say that was that was either inside endurance trying to kill me or Courtney on the way out the door. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> That's well, all. When the drama comes, gunshots go. Never been a drug dealer, but I know true killers. Criminals and murderers, Pittsburgh stealers. Shine town animals, bears and all bulls. No cats in Minnesota that's feared like T-Wolves. Dudes carry bats like they played for the Dodgers. Detroit to TX like Roy Rogers. Beast running palace like AI. Even in Milwaukee, make it rain so my bucks fly. For a beer up in Denver on the Bronco. If you owe me nuggets, I expect the payments and we are back in the sports world athletes coaches media they all do cool things away from sports and we tell them to stop doing those cool things that they like and tell them to get back to watching game film that is ridiculous life is just work and the things that distract us from work so on this podcast we celebrate 
distractions instead of chastising them. Guys, I'm going to go first and tell you what's been distracting me this week. <clears throat> By the way, battling a sinus infection. Sorry for the voice inflection. But Gareth, I'm going to aim this at you. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about Weezer. Interesting. There's a new song that I heard recently called Feels Like Summer. It's Weezer's latest hit, if you can call it that. I don't know how big it is at the time we're taping this. I found it to be a fun jam that felt mostly written to be like played in the transition scenes in a reality TV show like The Hills or like something else on MTV. <laughs> like it, It's entirely frivolous. And initially, I got annoyed by that in the same way that people got mm-hmm. annoyed by like Liz Fair when she started doing pop songs. And then I got annoyed at myself for being mad about the, uh, I guess, uh, cultural credibility of a band who introduced themselves to the world with the sweater song <laughs> and Buddy Holly <laughs> and uh, Island in the Sun. In my opinion, the band has not changed. The context of rock and roll has changed. And what they did in the 90s felt closer to authentic, grungy, alternative rock. But now it feels closer to, you know, dopey pop. So we seem to be penalizing the band, but I don't think it's their fault. I agree with it, and the the way I'll view it is like uh, I'm going to try to. I don't say this to sound like a jerk, but I say it, I'm I'm going to dumb this down a little bit. I, I, I was about, the words Don DeLillo were about to come out of my mouth, and I was like, "Why don't you just dial that one back there, Hoss?" Um, hey man, so, this look, is a this is a podcast that breaks down Le'Veon Bell rap. Let's not Don DeLillo this, all right? <laughs> right, right. No, but um, it, it's interesting because like I thought about I, I've been thinking about this recently in terms of like what art and artists are, and I think that that's what you're describing is just part of it. Like, you know, it's something where you realize like people like or actors or a filmmaker or an author or a band, they'll go away for a year or two and then they come back with something and then you might not like it. And then you might never go back to them, but they still keep making stuff. And, and think, I think for a lot of these people, like we view, um, artists is the like you often think in terms of artists you like or movies or directors or actors or whatever in terms of the successes, but they're all artists. They're all trying to do the work and get work made um, and things like that. And so like there will be periods where they go away or where they're frankly like more interested in something than the general populace, you know, where Weezer's going to make like, Liz Fair wants to make pop songs and the general public might not want to buy her pop songs, but it's the same drive and ambition that had her make Exile and Guyville that made her want to write pop songs. Like people want to try that. You know, what I think is interesting is I read something about Weezer a couple of years ago and I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to like them anymore. Um, this has happened with bands like Creed and Nickelback. Like, people at one point really, really liked their music. And I just think 
Oh yeah, we don't like them anymore. Like, who's deciding this? <laughs> right. Uh, there's. It, I actually read a really interesting article on the uh, social media trend that really took uh, Nickelback downhill. Was it? Was it people? People being able to download their music, <laughs> listen to it. <laughs> no, no, it was. Uh, I believe it started in the UK, and one person started. I guess at at that time it was a meme before we knew what memes were, and that really spread the hate for Nickelback. And I just think that most people aren't smart enough to know that they don't like something without being directed to. Just be able to think for yourself and like what you like. There's a lot of music on my iPod and definitely on Brad's iPod that people would consider shitty, but hey, do what you like. Guys, I own like 30 Alexi Lala songs. So, <laughs> uh, no judgment here. All right, Gareth, uh, distract us. You know what? One of the main distractions in my house of late has been uh, David Bowie. I've brought him up on here before. There is a show at the Brooklyn Museum about David Bowie and his life and art. My wife and I went to see it last week on a date night. It was exceptional. But my daughter went to see it after on like a, they had a day off from school. So this local dad brought her and she came home and she jumped on the phone. And she like this dad was like, dude, she spent 80 minutes in this exhibit of like David Bowie's life and art and outfits and fashion. And so she got on the phone with me that night. She's like, daddy, I'm in love with David Bowie. I fell in love with him today. Whoa. She's six. But, well, it doesn't get much more Brooklyn than this. I mean, let's be honest here. Uh, Garrett, but I was like, th- yeah, th- you could do a lot worse. By the hands. <laughs> That's enhanced by the fact that you're, you're telling this story on a fucking podcast. Like. From Brooklyn. Oh, Brad, no, 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 it's about to get better. Hold on. Hold on. So anyway, so I'm like, well, Belhada, he's he was pretty great. Uh, you could do a lot worse. She was like, and then she said, she's like, do you want to know what song I fell in love with him to? No. And like, I'm thinking one of like the pop songs or something like that. This is where we know that she is my daughter. She goes. Life on Mars. I fell in love with him listening to Life on Mars. <laughs> and I was like, oh boy. Jesus, deep hunky dory ap- uh, album cut. Here we go. This is my daughter for sure. So we've been listening to a lot of David Bowie in our house, and that has been a recent distraction. Uh, I encourage everyone to throw some on in the next couple weeks. Soon she'll be making her own clothes. <laughs> oh, she already does, bro. She 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 takes her clothes and sews like she'll cut out a star of fabric and like sew that on there to uh, you know, make her own customized shirts. And Gareth, she's eventually then going to rebel against you and become an accountant. <laughs> she's Alex P Keaton. You know, that'll be her rebellion. It'll be great. <laughs> Adam, what's uh what's distracting you? I watched Two excellent documentaries this past weekend. One was one I had heard about that debuted at the Toronto Film Festival last year. It's called The Carter Effect. And it talked about Vince Carter's time in Toronto. Toronto being very much a hockey town. And how Vince Carter almost single-handedly transformed basketball uh, pretty quickly into the number two sport um in that town and also put Toronto on the map for a lot of NBA players who knew nothing about it before then. Uh, 
so it was a really fascinating documentary. I paid the three ninety nine for it on uninterrupted, which I swore I wouldn't do, uh, but it was worth the purchase. So I'd recommend that. And on the flip side of things, I watched a four hour documentary that was produced. I th- believe it was Showtime, but maybe it was HBO. Is HBO? Uh, it was the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, who I knew about. And I think, so we grew up watching him, but I wouldn't have understood his humor at that time. Um, And Judd Apatow was a good friend of Gary's, produced the documentary. And it was, uh, not all of it was uplifting, uh, but it really was inspiring from the fact that this guy really examined his life. He really uh, worked hard and prepared for uh all of these shows that he did, uh, and although a relatively short life at age 66, um, he packed so much in, and I would recommend that to anyone. I can't wait to, I've been wanting to watch that. I'm, I'm excited by your review. Nice, man. I love Gary Shandling. Let's end with some shout outs. I'm going to shout out Ryan Sutter. Uh, the only man I've ever tried to murder. Ryan, you are an amazing sport an even more amazing athlete. Uh, best of luck continuing those endeavors. And uh, and a great guy who, at the end of our interview, just sent me a note back and was like, hey, cool, it was, it was fun to do the interview. It was just better to catch up, man. Uh, I hope everything's well. So that, that was nice. So uh, I'll give my usual shout-outs. Shout-out to my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Lil Swanee, Meech, Ron back and my other cousin Ron. And in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers, hey booty. Yeah,